welcome to Akiopolitics, a podcast about politics in the wizarding world of Harry Potter. I'm Erin. And I'm Adri. And we are two recovering English majors. Today, we'll be discussing the politics of fear. In Chapter 7, The Boggart in the Wardrobe of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban by J.K. Rowling. Are you imagining the music in your head? Yes, always, every time. I was doing that too. (laughs) All right, so we are back after um, a week that we didn't publish. Listeners, we're so sorry. We missed you. I mean, yes, but also, um, not only was I moving into my new home or our new home, um, I had no internet, so life happens. Life happens. And by our new home, she means her and her husband's, not, I mean, not Aaron and Adrian. I mean, that would be I fun. Mean, Podcast central, right? But Aaron is welcome. <laughs> there is space in the new home for visitors. <laughs> yes. Mine and my husband's new home, but Aaron can visit. But yeah, life happens, you know? The logistics were out of our control. I know, I know. We should have planned better, but life also happened. (laughs) It's a lot to manage, you know? You know, the podcast. (laughs) 12-hour days of work. Life. Plus, you know, you you do actually have a visitor in town right now. Yes, I have my mother. It's it's (laughs) been an experience, you guys. (laughs) and in other news you have recently gotten a new do tell us what the inspiration was i mean obviously (laughs) my avatar from hogwarts mystery (laughs) it looks fabulous and i now my avatar is uncanny it's just, it's like, who's who? Oh my God, it's me at Hogwarts. <laughs> yes, I'll be retweeting the picture tomorrow, listeners. Don't worry, once the new episode drops. I mean, it looks pretty good. We're gonna ha- I'm going to have to do like a side-by-side avatar of me. Yes, that's the way to do it. Please okay. do that. Okay, okay. Well, <laughs> so today we're talking about episode seven. And it is my turn for the chapter summary, which is, as you know, my very favorite thing in the world. (laughs) Okay, so here we go. Draco is being a little bit much at potions, pretending he's pretty close to death itself, which to, I say, and I'm going to get heat for this, we all wish Draco, or at least I wish. Um, Ron even has to do things for him because Snape forces Ron to kind of slice his, uh, potion ingredients. Um, then Sirius Black has been cited. That's the hot goss in the double potions classroom. Um, and then Draco says something to Harry about getting revenge on Sirius Black, which Harry doesn't quite understand yet. Um, 
Then Neville is riding the struggle bus in potions, but Hermione is there to help him by whispering instructions to him so that when Snape tries to humiliate him in front of everyone, it doesn't happen. But that costs Gryffindor a few points uh, because Snape is like, how did I not kill Trevor the Toad? What is happening? Um, <laughs> defense against the dark arts with Professor Lupin was a practical lesson in defeating Boggarts. Or Bogarts? I don't know how to say that. Whatever, you guys. Um, <laughs> Professor Lupin explains that they'll each have to face their fears and cast a spell to make Bogart funny since laughter is what kills them. And that spell in the movies is pronounced ridiculous. And in my audiobook, it's play, it's, it is um, ridiculous, which, you know, who knows? Um, Teach their own, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Um Neville is still nervous because uh, Snape is the worst, and he's not 100% confident that he's going to be able to face his fear, which, (laughs) spoiler alert, is also Snape. And Lupin tells him to just put his grandmother's clothes on Snape and cast a spell. Um, All the kids, except for Harry and Hermione, are given a turn, which is fun for everyone, but Harry feels a little bit self-conscious about it, and so does Hermione. And that is it. Well summarized. And I've always said Boggart. I mean, I don't know. I think it's, yeah, I think it's whatevs, but I've always said Boggart. I mean, however you say it, we both read it. It's fine. (laughs) So this is a fun chapter, um, and there's a lot to talk about. And, of course, we're talking about the politics of fear today. Um, So let's talk a little bit about what that politic means. Okay, so fear is like super powerful and it makes people take positions that can even go against their moral compass. So when you're afraid and, and backed into a corner, I feel like sometimes your truest self is revealed or kind of like the, the parts that maybe you need to work on a little bit. Um, so people react in different ways. Um, it, is our instinct to protect ourselves or is it to protect other people? Mm-hmm. Um So what does that say about the kind of people that we are? Mm -hmm. Um, And that that also made me think about, like, is there space for compassion and fear? So can you both be afraid but have compassion for other people? Mm -hmm. Um, And um, what is it that we fear the most? And what does that say about us? So, for instance, Erin, like, what is your greatest fear? Oh, gosh. Um failure um like and i mean like large large scale failure like you know um i don't really know how else to phrase that it's kind of existential like my bogart i don't really know what form it would take it would actually probably take the form of it from stephen king's it um but i think the existential fear is more around like large scale failure same same like mine would be like something that's out of my control like I don't know, like, I usually have, like, this recurring dream of, like, falling, mm. like, long distances, and it's, like, that feeling of feeling out of control, and, right. like, fear, like, my fear is, like, failing and feeling out of control, yeah, so, like, something like that, like, something that is out of my control, if anything is out of my control, and I feel like I, I could, I, I don't know, like, what I could do about it, or I don't know how to fix it, like, that is the worst Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sort of like intangible fear. Um, things that you can't just like 
immediately fix or address and it's not necessarily centered around like a physical object or thing yeah so uh our current event today is a op-ed that was published in the atlantic about how evangelical fear elected trump and it's just like not a super long read but it, it goes through this explanation of historical evangelism and how mm-hmm. it has in turn persecuted others when there was another way um and all of that persecution is based on fear and how that historical context informs why 81% of evangelicals voted for Trump because it mm-hmm. was out of fear and he stokes that fear in their hearts. Mhm. Mhm. Which yeah. <clears throat> yeah, go ahead. No, no, I would I mean just to continue off of that line of thought, it's it's that rhetoric of fear in how he addresses, you know, his voter base in the policies that have been enacted and in the things that we've pulled out of, you know. Um and I'll I'll save more of this um, for for very later at the end of the episode when we talk about media that we've been consuming. But I recently watched a documentary that kind of goes into this like a little bit, and um, it's fascinating. And by fascinating, re read uh, scary, terrifying. <laughs> you mean terrifying, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. Um, I. I wanted to talk about this op-ed because there's awful things happening right now and there's awful things been happening for a while now. But that kind of op-ed talks about like the basis of it all and and why there's still so much support for um, this administration within like evangelical circles or like, you know, very conservative Christian circles. Um, I also wanted to talk about how this fear um is also what is what is driving like our immigration laws mm-hmm. or oh, like yeah. n- not really laws but you know what i mean like immigration regulations or whatever this practices perhaps yeah whatever yeah. Mm-hmm. so like this idea of taking people and separating families and putting children and like basically cages right so so that's all out of fear and that is made acceptable because of fear yeah and I think that that rhetoric of fear again Adriana is stoked through spectacles like you know the recent um event where President Trump brought out victims of um you know crimes by made by illegal immigrants and it just sort of serves to validate the fear that the base of his voters already has. And that's not to deny that these crimes did or didn't happen, but just that they happened within a larger context and that those numbers are, you know, like something that we could consider against, you know, the amount of um, nonviolent illegal immigrants who are coming to seek asylum. Um, And it's hard to combat a feeling even when you have logic and fact and rationale because it's a feeling. And so it, it's a hard thing to kind of expel. Oh, yeah. That, that's, I mean, and that's the thing. Like, fear can be used as a political tool to enact certain um, responses, right? So fear is also used 
to to enact responses, you know, not just politically, but in our everyday life, like that idea of, oh, if I don't get this one item, someone else is going to get it. And like the fear of not having it, even though you might not need it, that's what makes you buy something, Mm -hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. so oh, fear sure. is used as a tool to manipulate a lot of people into doing things that maybe they didn't want or need to do. Yeah, no, fear is a very strong motivating feeling. All right, so we've talked about the politic. We've di- summarized the chapter, but let's talk a little bit on how we see fear operating in this chapter before we go into our characters and our deep dives. Well, I love this chapter because it's our first introduction into a bogger, and a bogger is seemingly sort of fear made manifest. Um, and I think it's interesting that, you know, we're seeing a bogger through the lens of um, like 13 year olds because. Like we were talking about at the beginning of this episode, our kind of fear, Adriana, is something that's like less tangible in terms of the form that it could take. Um, But for these kids, you know, it's like it's giant spiders for Ron or it's, you know, like Snape for Neville. And we know for Harry, it would likely be, you know, a Dementor. Um, And so all of these fears take like the form of like a physical thing or person or object. Um, But I think it's just a really nice sort of... um, metaphor for like the things that exist maybe like in our conscious or subconscious um and I'll get into more of that specifically in my deep dive quote but yeah I just I love um I remember the first time that I read this particular chapter in this book and the bugger it was really fascinating for me um and the idea that like you know no one has ever really seen what a bugger looks like because it takes on the shape of what you fear, you know, instantaneously. So I think all of that is just really, like, interesting to untangle. Oh, yeah. No, and then I also want to point out that not only is the bogger the part that I identified as fear in this chapter, but also kind of how Snape rules through fear and through cruelty in his classroom yes, was yes. very apparent to me once I put that lens to the chapter itself. Yeah, definitely. And the Gryffindors are definitely the ones who suffer the most at his hands. Poor you know, Neville. Um, poor, poor Neville, poor Hermione, just poor, the, you know, the students that, yeah, that are not Slytherin. Although I guess, I don't know, we don't really see how Ravenclaws and Hufflepuffs are treated by Snape too often, but yeah, Gryffindors are definitely the bane of his existence. Okay, so we talked a little bit about how we see it in the chapter. Let's talk characters. Erin, what do you have for us today? Well, I love Neville's growth in this chapter, you know, because at the beginning, it's like you said, he's, um, you know, he's he's not in a great place. He's uh, he's sort of like foiled himself again in Snape's class by bungling his potion that Hermione had to help him with. And, you know, how terrible that he was going to... F- like basically kill Trevor if Hermione hadn't helped him um, fix that potion. But by the end of the chapter, 
he's sort of reclaimed some of his confidence because he's been able to, you know, successfully convert the Boggart from Snape to sort of like a cross between Snape and his grandmother. So I was really proud and happy for Neville in this chapter. And I feel like maybe this is like part of, maybe this is like a milestone in like the journey that is Neville's eventual culmination into like a a heroic figure by the end of this series. Um, By the seventh book, you know, like the sort of Gryffindor appears for him. So I think this is like a milestone in Neville's journey. This is a significant moment. I know. And like, for me, definitely Neville, but also a little bit hairy because he's just confused and he doesn't know why he doesn't get to see his boggart. And I don't know. It's like he, he glares at Snape. He, he's like standing up to that fear like he he knows that the intent is fear and he's not letting that drive his emotions fully see that's interesting because i felt like harry kind of like more or less stayed the same in terms of development just because in a lot of ways snape is more representative of the kind of like fear And this is the whole reason why Lupin doesn't choose him, right? But, like, Snape is more representative of the kind of, like, fear that the rest of the student base that hasn't had to, like, face Lord Voldemort twice already has. It's, like, it's, it's not, I don't want to say, like, a simplified fear, but it's just, like, it's a much more tangible and understandable and less complex fear. Whereas, like, Harry hasn't really examined like why it is that the Dementors cause like so much fear in him and he also hasn't like yeah like I get like why he's upset that he didn't get a turn at the Bogart like Hermione's kind of like miffed at it too you know like everybody wanted that chance to sort of like overcome that fear but Harry's like inability to recognize that like he is not in a place to have been able to do that I think just shows that he hasn't quite grown enough yet from that initial experience on the train. That's just my personal Well, and opinion. what I meant was when we're talking about Snape and double potions, when Snape is trying to rule by fear and Draco is definitely trying to instill fear in Harry, he stands up to that fear instead of being dominated by that fear. Oh, no, absolutely. But that's also pretty of typical Harry, yeah. of Harry. Like, I mean, that's a very, that's like definitely a very Harry trait. That's part of like why he's so, I mean, that's part of why we love you, Potter. It's because of the way you stand up to the baddies. But also, I want to talk a little bit about Snape. So why is it that he feels so compelled to rule by fear? Is it because he feels fear himself, right? So Um, What is the point of trying to kill Neville's toad? Well, let's unpack Snape for a second. You know, what we know about him and his own sort of like experience at Hogwarts, um, he definitely was the victim of a lot of fear-based tactics, you know, um, know, and a lot of them from Gryffindors, which explains sort of like this irrational sort of behavior that he has towards these 13-year-old students. <laughs> but I think um, a lot of his motivation for acting the way that he does comes from a mixture of that experience, but also maybe the pressure 
and stress that he feels sort of like operating as a double agent in the way that he does. Um, I, I, I don't know. Maybe a, a better question is like, why can't he rise above <laughs> those experiences? Yeah, that's what um, I mean. Like what, like you're the adult in this situation, presumably, right? right? Like, why do you feel the need to be this way? And, and sometimes the answer is because you're insecure, right? Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and it's hard because a lot of us have been insecure and have been that person who has tried to rule by fear. But it's like, okay, so, so is there any character development there later on and that's something we could definitely trace or is this something that stays pretty steady throughout yeah no and I mean I think definitely within the first four or five books at least at least you know that behavior doesn't really change and even like Hermione you know Snape's impervious to the charm of Hermione that's how deep the hatred and treatment goes I mean that's that's a charming student who wants to learn and and is super capable. So, yeah. Let's deep dive into our quotes, Erin. You go first. Okay, so my, my quote actually comes on the last page of this chapter on page 140 of the Scholastic Edition. Um, this is when the students are discussing sort of like their boggarts and um, uh they're just like thinking back through the experience and um lavender says i wonder why professor lupin's frightened of crystal balls said lavender thoughtfully that was the best defense against the dark arts lesson we've ever had wasn't it said ron excitedly as they made their way back to the classroom to get their bags he seems like a very good teacher said hermione approvingly but i wish i could have had a turn with the boggart what would it have been for you said ron sniggering a piece of homework that only got nine out of ten uh, so I chose this quote for a couple of reasons. One, because like it's interesting that Hermione didn't get a turn with the bogger because it does beg the question, right? Like, what does our favorite Heron protagonist fear? What does that fear look like? And I also think it's a cruel jab on Ron's part to like belittle or undermine that potential fear by saying it's like something like, you know, as trivial as like a pile of undone homework or something. Um And it seems like, again, like typical Ron, like foot in the mouth syndrome, like he's just overcome his, you know, fear of like that huge six foot spider. So he's like riding a high wave and feels like he can, you know, make a jab at Hermione or whatever. But coming back to what Lavender comments about, you know, we'll learn later on in the book exactly why Lupin is afraid of crystal balls and things that look like moons. But this exercise, when I think about it, is actually maybe even kind of an exercise in a, a kind of fear tactic because I love Lupin, okay? I love him. But I don't necessarily know that like I would have been I would have felt like safe or secure um having to like tackle my greatest fear embodied in front of like my classmates and peers without having had like some kind of, you know, advance notice like dear student on you know january the third we will be facing your deepest seedest fears like perhaps schedule a post you know post counseling session at the end (laughs) like something do you know what i mean like everyone's exposed and everyone's in this very vulnerable position and again obviously i think he does 
tried to shield some of his more sensitive students, read Harry, you know, Harry Potter. But nevertheless, like, I don't know. Do you get where I'm coming from with this thought? Well, and when we were talking about the politics of fear is is why I said, do you think there's any compassion in there? Because I think that Lupin is a great example of how to tackle um, fear with compassion. He was extremely compassionate to all his students, especially Mm -hmm. Neville. And he was Mm -hmm. coaching all the students in what to do. And Mm -hmm. he didn't put his students in a place he wouldn't have put himself. Like even he himself like faced the boggart. Like it it would have been different if this was like Gilderoy Lockhart. Oh death oh my God, this would have been a fucking disaster. So like <laughs> or even Snape, right? So like um Snape would have been gleefully laughing at the children instead of the boggart. Would he have though? Would he have though? Because I think that would Unless have it was a Slytherin. This- well, well, like, could, here's the other thing, though, is, like, could Snape be so vulnerable to be in a room with a bogger in front of a bunch of students? Like, do you know, and that's, like, coming back to my point, like, that's a very vulnerable and exposed position to occupy. And, like, yeah, like, the 13-year-olds are afraid of, like, you know, fucking Snape and snakes. Like, fine, whatever. But, like, what do you do when your fear is like the fear of losing the person that you love the most and never being able to redeem yourself in her eyes? Boom. Like what if Snape, you know, like what if Snape's Boggart is, I don't know, like a direct reflect, like what if it's also himself? Fuck. I don't know. Like that's a very vulnerable position to occupy. Well, I, I know he wouldn't have occupied that position himself, which is why I'm telling you that he wouldn't have, um, face the boggart, but he would have made maybe the students face it. You know what I'm saying? Like, he would have probably, like, shielded himself out of the boggart's way and been like, this is hilarious. Or like, oh, Neville, you fear me the most. That is great information to have. Um, but not, because, I mean, he because he does like to just put, like, all this all this attention on Gryffindors and like, and kind of humiliates or tries to humiliate Neville at every turn. No. And I know that I'm being super, super granular here, but like, I just don't think that Snape would even engage in an exercise like this because of how vulnerable he would be because of the potentiality to be exposed. Like even in front of his own Slytherins, like, and just like the, the, yeah, like I see what you're saying about like, yeah, like removing himself and taking away the risk. But like, I think for Snape, he couldn't even, he couldn't even think to like participate or enact this kind of exercise for the risk that it would put him in. Yeah. And I definitely see that. Um, but let's say for some reason, like if, if there's like a way to shield yourself from a boggart, I'm sure there's not. But like if there was a way, he would find it and then like exploit that. Sure. So, okay. Um, anything else you want to say about your quote? Nope. All right. So my quote is right before the Defense Against the Dark Arts lesson really starts. And um, this is Snape. At the doorway, he turned on his heel and said, Possibly no one's warned you, Lupin, but this class contains Neville Longbottom. I would advise you not to entrust him with anything difficult, not unless Miss Granger is hissing instructions in his ear. Neville went scarlet. 
Harry glared at Snape. It was bad enough that he bullied Neville in his own classes, let alone doing it in front of other teachers. Professor Lupin had raised his eyebrows. I was hoping that Neville would assist me with the first stage of the operation, he said, and I am sure he will perform it admirably. So I chose this quote because one, this is Snape again trying to like bully Neville outside the classroom to kind of own him for not being thoroughly embarrassed in potions um, and how Lupin takes that and kind of twists it with compassion and like turns that fear into something like like that that tactic of fear turns it into something that is compassionate and trusting of the student yeah definitely um so so then we see how like the difference between like Snape and Lupin is like Snape tries to rule by fear and like even with when faced with fear, Lupin tries to kind of rule by compassion, but also authority. Yeah, he's clearly the more adult in the situation. I mean, we could all, uh, I wish I could be like Lupin. (laughs) (laughs) I wish. So, okay, so we, we talked about our quotes in fear, but does your quote make you think about imprisonment? How? So how not? Oh, yeah. Well, I think Lupin's a clear example of how fear can imprison you. Um, You know, again, if you've read this book, and we're not too concerned about spoilers, but spoiler, he's a werewolf. And so he lives, I think, in constant fear of potentially hurting others and hurting students um, by virtue of, like, what he changes into. Um, And... I think it's very admirable the way that he, like you said, takes on the Boggart like with the students because it is a very exposed and vulnerable position to be in. And I think he, I think he's just like an excellent role model um, by showing them, you know, yes, like this is my greatest fear. And he didn't even explain it. He didn't have to, he, you know, that's not part of it, but like, I think, um, I think Lupin is imprisoned by like the fear of of who he turns into and like how he can harm others, but he he deals with it so admirably. You know, and mine makes me think of like how sad is it that um Professor Snape is imprisoned by his own like desire to rule by fear. Or to control everything in every situation to make himself look better. My mom would tell me to pray for him. Yeah, that's how sad he is. Yeah, yeah. I, I think. And she, and like, and that would, and like, she would mean it. Like, she would be like, for his soul, you know, for him, like, pray for him. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I could see that happening. I could see that happening for sure. So we've talked about imprisonment. We've talked about fear. We've had a healthy conversation around Snape and Boggarts. Um, but let's talk about some of the media that we've been consuming this week. I mean, 
I've been watching Queer Eye season two and I've been crying and it's been healing my soul like a phoenix tears. Oh, that's so beautifully put. Okay, so don't hate me. I have not seen season one or season two yet. You have homework. It has not happened for me, but like Liz, our dear friend, has almost echoed your words verbatim. She described it to me as a solve for my soul. So <laughs> you need it. You need it in your life. And it sounds like the medicine I need. Yes. Yeah. It sounds like the medicine I need. So like, what is it? So do you remember in the early aughts, there's like this show called Queer Eye for the Straight Guy? So it's a yep. reboot of that idea. But it's not, it's, it's more, a little bit more political this time. It's a little bit more, I would hazard to say loving. Like, oh, like it's great. not okay. just about like making, like making your style and your house up and like whatever. It's like also changing the inside and like, it, it's more, I, I would. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very beautiful. And season one, a lot of them um, are in georgia so okay so it's like very like bible belt um situation that these five fabulous gay men are walking into um okay and it again like i want to echo something like kind of like lupin like to just go into all these situations with compassion instead of fear Yeah. yeah and like that makes all the difference I mean, it's it's really good. It makes me cry all the time, which is like sobbing, but like in a very good way. I'm totally going to have to check it out. And I think that's like a super appropriate like thing to end on in terms of media, because it seems like the antidote to fear is is actually like love and compassion. Like I was making a joke earlier about my mom like and praying, but like, no, that actually I'm not saying that prayers solve everything, but I do believe in the power of love and compassion and however you want to manifest that. Listeners, you can now hear my dog walking across the room. To come Good morning, Gael. <laughs> All right. So what have Good you? Good morning. So what have you been watching? So I, um, I actually watched a document. Well, okay. Like, let me start on a happier note. Last night I watched Jurassic World, uh, what is it? Um, like the fallen fallen hmm. kingdom. Thank you. It was good. It was good. I cried. Um, I, yeah, I didn't want the dinosaurs to die. Spoilers. Some of the dinosaurs die. Um, but I also watched a documentary, uh, called white, right? Meaning the enemy. Um, and this is a, a new documentary on, uh, on Netflix from 2017. And it's, um, by this director and filmmaker Dia Khan, um, who's this activist, feminist, um, woman, uh, a woman of color. Um, I believe she grew up in Germany, I want to say, um, and then came to the United States later. Um, but she wanted to understand, you know, what the, what is behind this mentality? What is behind this, you know, um, white nationalist, you know, pseudo-Christian, neo-Nazi mentality. And she, um, yeah, she she goes in and she, um, she interviews a couple of different people, um, and focuses on, on kind of three main people in this documentary. And Adriana, like, I just, I highly recommend it. I, 
I actually don't really want to spoil it because I, I do want you is to it, see okay, it. Okay, but... okay, okay, okay. Is it going to make me want to like cry and or watch more Queer Eye to soothe my soul? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Definitely. Definitely. But I, I think, just, I like, need to know what I'm walking into. <laughs> but like, I will say that like, there is so much hope. And that is what I think is so incredible is that like, there are some very dark, like, yeah, it's very, it goes to some very dark places when she's talking to these people. But at the end, like, there is hope, there is so much hope. And it is through love and compassion. Um, ultimately, that I think I think those are ultimately like our best tools for combating these things. So that is what I have been consuming and it was excellent. All right. so much for listening to this episode of Akio Politics. That's all we have for today, but we'll be back next week discussing the politics of authority in chapter eight, the flight of the fat lady problematic title of Harry Potter and the prisoner of Azkaban by JK Rowling. Super problematic, but I guess we'll talk about that next episode. So until then, politics managed. Listeners, please rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts or anywhere where you listen to our podcast so that we can keep growing. Another way you can help us to keep growing is to recommend us to your friends. Long story short, we want to reach as many people as possible and we've been growing, but you know, we can always grow more. You can find us online at www.akiopolitics.com. We're at Akiopolitics on Twitter and on Instagram. You can also leave us a voicemail with your thoughts by calling 915-996-1699. Drop us a virtual owl at info at com or at acupolitics at gmail.com. This podcast was produced by Adriana Wilson and Aaron Barrio. Our theme music was crafted by the amazing Kayla Sluka, who is not just a composer, but also a great photographer. You can find her at www.treasuregroots.com. <laughs>